Hello, Solving Water listeners. In this series, we're revisiting the latest happenings in the commercial buildings industry and kicking off Xylem's Building Better initiative, the Bell & Gossip brand's commitment to finding solutions to the most critical HVAC and plumbing challenges facing the commercial buildings market today. I'm thrilled to be back at the Air Conditioning, Heating, and Refrigeration Expo for the first time since 2020, recording live from Atlanta. Be sure to subscribe to or stream wherever you get your podcasts for industry insights and lots of interesting updates from longtime Bell & Gossip reps and Xylem experts alike. I'd like to welcome Dan Chedeke to the show, Director of Business Development at Mulcahy. Thank you. The way that we typically do it on Solving Water is we're gonna, I'm just gonna ask you to introduce yourself and yep. tell everybody what you do. My name's Dan, been with Mulcahy Company for 30 years now. Um, we're a manufacturer's rep in the upper Midwest, northern you know, Minnesota, western Wisconsin, north South Dakota, covering things that generally deal with water, heating, cooling, potable, industrial, that sort of thing. I'm fresh out of college, but 30 years later, I'm with the same place. So uh, eventually my, my particular emphasis is to lobby and keep tabs of engineers and what they're doing and make sure we get in the most pref- preferable bidding orientation on stuff, help them out technically. I uh, also do a lot with training, both internal and external training with people. Um, I also do a lot with factories to help, const- you know, voice of the customer surveys, that sort of thing, trying to develop new products, new trends, new industries, and new marketing opportunities. I've been a part of Ashley for a long time. Uh, my current position is first vice chair for the membership promotion committee at society level, which in July I take over the committee. So uh, we're, we're responsible for the society level, which is really international level, recruiting, retention, um, efforts for society as a whole. There's two sort of branches of ASHRAE. There's the technical side, which I'm actually involved a little bit on, but the membership side, which is things like this, where we host programs, we try to interact with students at uh, at all grade levels, actually. We have efforts there. Um, so membership promotion sort of interacts with all of the other membership councils to try to improve the experience with ASHRAE members and, and see what they like, what they don't like. One of the things the membership promotions kind of, committee kind of taken over re- recently is uh, the DEI initiatives for ASHRAE. So it's a big, huge, scary topic. can get a lot of people's guard up, but as a grassroots level, we're just trying to say, try to be most, as inclusive as you can, that sort of thing. So that's been interesting. Well, that's great. <laughs> you handle a lot of different yeah. things. One of the things that stood out to me was you said you, you're training people. Do you mean like training in like hydronic systems and in that regard, or what kinds of training are you doing? Personally, I, I, I do most, I mean, all of our product lines, which includes you know, not just the Vazylon products with water, with pumps and heat exchangers, but also cooling towers, variable speed drives, um, some piping products that we have. There's various industries, various applications. So uh, either I'm supposed to know it or I know who to send in my place to do it for it. So and some of it is bringing onboarding new people. Some of it is, you know, lobbying efforts and a mixture of the two. And so educating different levels. I mean, it, that's the fun part of my job is I have to explain the same thing five or ten different ways depending upon the person I'm talking to. Some want very, very technical answers. Some want very simplistic hand puppet answers. So okay. that's, that's the fun challenge challenge part of it so what's going on recently with ashray and especially now that we're here at ahr what are you working on um ashray is always trying to you know improve 
improve the world, the built environment as they were. Efficiency has only been a goal since it started. <laughs> so, and so that's always on the, that's, you know, that's uh, what they call an evergreen topic. You know, it always is going to be a topic that's going on. So doing anything that possible more efficiently. Um, the big push lately is decarbonization, trying to get away from fossil fuels used in installations, used in buildings as a source on site or as electrical source in buildings. So um, that is going to become much more of a topic going through um, as the future goes on, just because, uh, you know, environmental concerns, sustainability concerns, um, you know, climate change and, and people's attitudes there. So, you know, if you believe or not believe in whatever aspect there is, it's coming down the, down the pipe. And so everybody's going to be asking for it. And we're seeing it not just in governmental institutions, but also private institutions as well. You know, there's literally net zero buildings that use no uh, fossil fuels. So the chairwoman on the uh, membership promotion committee showed me a snapshot of her project that she's from Montreal. It was minus 29 degrees centigrade, which all I know is it's cold. I don't know the Fahrenheit centigrade thing, but, and they were using, they were, they were recovering waste heat from a uh, industrial process so along the way of, of that it's that that's the other big implementation or you know approach that we're seeing is people gaining up facilities you know putting a power plant so that we can use you know all of the energy from the power plant not just make electricity with it that sort of thing so interesting yeah how does that impact your day to day yeah my day to day is it's just adapting to a new application really I always like to say hydronics is the currency of energy. I can take it from one spot and move it to another spot. So trying to promote people to use that versus other methods. The, the whole refrigeration cycle where you're absorbing heat from one source and dumping it into another source is, uh, is part of that equation. You know, there's, there's downsides to using refrigerant versus using, you know, well, hydronics and water and glycol for that sort of application. So um, just understanding that and letting people know that the actual application of using electricity is not clean by itself. You're just moving the exhaust pipe somewhere else. So, I mean, but you have certain parts of the world that have, say, hydroelectric power. So they do everything they can do to use that electricity. They have an excess of capacity. So they will say, I learned about it just sitting around an ASHRAE conference and I sat down next to somebody from Seattle and they said, oh, the big push is decarbonization. This is like five years ago. I was like, what the heck is decarbonization? And explained to me, and they was, oh, well, city of Seattle says no more new gas, natural gas hookups. So I'm like, all right, what do you do? You just live in a tent and burn wood for fire and water? And no, 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 they have, you know, you have to use electric stoves and, and so, but they, I said, but are power plants inefficient? Well, not if they're hydroelectric. Like, oh, okay, that's renewable, it's it's clean, it's all sorts of stuff. So they're they're pushing that way. Um, City of New York has no new natural gas hookups. So, and as a gas boiler manufacturer, that would uh, send some chills down my spine if I was in that area, but... It's not coming to Minneapolis just yet, <laughs> but okay. there, there's talk. There's talk. So it's it's a lot of that, and maybe it's understanding how hydronics fits into it. Maybe it's we have to go out and find new products to be the source for those applications. So you know, at some point, my job is to provide the solution they want, help them help them with it. So we were mentioning net zero. How is that evolving in the industry? I feel like net zero was like super hot and heavy buzzword for a long time, right. and then it just kind of fell by the wayside so now it's decarbonization is the top the word of the moment but now it's kind of back again mm-hmm. and is it an achievable thing are people actually doing this the answer to your question is sort of and i guess say you know it's not an engineering answer it is feasible it is practical it can be done it requires a lot of 
design changes. It, it, so it becomes very difficult to do in a, an existing building because the equipment changes, the spaces available change. You know, one thing that's kind of come out is that with all of this work from home standpoint is there's a lot less people in buildings. So that means there's less square footage needed for offices. So all of a sudden now this space becomes available to put energy recovery units, heat pumps, any sorts of other technologies. So you're seeing a lot of uh, global or large trends hitting each other and causing, you know, creating opportunity for some people. So it is feasible. It's not, it certainly will not be ubiquitous. Unlike efficiency, efficient, you know, every building that's ever touched will be made more efficient than when it was. So, you know, either through code or for better equipment, um, you know, if they re- simply replace a boiler in a unit in a building, it could instantly go from in the mid 60s to the mid 90s just by, you know, through that, you know, replacing the existing equipment. That sort of thing is going to happen a lot. But net zero is in a very, very new, in a brand new building, maybe you can, you're still going to pay more money for it. You really have to want it. It's not necessarily something that provides a guaranteed rate, a reasonable rate of return on that investment. So who amongst us hasn't spent more money on something just because we thought it was really cool? Uh, I know um, Bell and Gossip Products went into NREL in Colorado. It was a new facility, and that mm-hmm. one's a, a net zero. So I know it's probably much more common in brand new facilities. It is. Um, well, ASHRAE's, now I think about it, ASHRAE's new um headquarters here in Atlanta is net zero. They do not have, it was an existing building that retrofitted extensively. Well, one, they're net zero because they, they just put a whole bunch of photovoltaic cells. They, they gave up parking spots. They gave up, you know, all sorts of, you know, square footage for stuff, um, but they had more parking spots than they needed. So they didn't really give up anything of value. So, but based on their loads, and you can imagine Atlanta is very different than Minneapolis, as far as the heating and cooling demands, you know, they can most of the time operate off of those those cells, off of those photovoltaic cells. So it, it is plausible, you know, but it requires um, a lot of a lot of thoughtfulness and a lot of engineering and a lot of you can't just say it's a building <laughs> of this size and make it net zero. You know, it's it, it requires a lot of engineering. What about water efficiency? So conservation, quality, reuse? Are, are there any reuse applications you're seeing? Uh, we're starting to see rainwater collection options. If you're familiar at all with LEED, you get so many points for doing meeting energy code or exceeding energy code and installing certain technologies, water, uh, water reclamation or water reuse, uh, whether it's from rainwater or blowdown or some sort of you know waste stream or something you know multiple uses of the same you know pound of water is very is definitely on the uptick the the challenge there is that you have to have enough of a large pile of, of a resource or energy to make it worthwhile I mean it's sort of you know there's a lot of people that put energy recovery on their dryers to try to recover that heat and that's noble but how how many times do you run your dryer you know I'm an empty nester now so the answer is not very often so but you see a lot of you know lower fixture unit uses you know per gallon of flush and a larger use of not so much of waterless uh, you know fixture unit you know urinals and toilets and such those haven't quite caught on because they they have a large amount of maintenance associated with them just lower you know lower water usage in general so is there are buildings being designed differently to accommodate some of these technologies they, they are. You'll see building, a modern building will have a lot of glass just for natural light. You know, you notice that right off the bat. Um, they will allow for 
much larger spaces for mechanical equipment and the, uh, the the architect will not argue so much if you want to put a piece of ductwork where you disperse air in a, in a better location. It really kind of comes down to the owner's tolerance and the owner's requests and the owner's you know demands. So you know you can we can live in a you can live in a camper pretty you know pretty nice or you can live in a nice condo of the same yeah. square footage. So it's it's really along that value area. It, so. It's just interesting because you, you mentioned with the the glass right yeah so you don't have to use as much light true but Mm -hmm. aren't windows technically aren't you losing energy through the window versus using walls theoretically yes that you know the concrete wall that's around us is a bit has a lower has a greater propensity to hold in heat but sometimes what you want is that heat to go away more naturally so um, that's why we'd have operable windows we would open the window and that would you know we'd magic we would air condition you know we, who'd have thought so you'll see you know those are actually coming back operable windows whereas before people viewed that as an energy hog because everyone would open the window and forget about it so it that's where the engineering comes into play you know i have engineers that you know one of my engineers was told me about a project he was working on how he had to convince the energy code that he did he shouldn't have that much insulation in the roof of the building because he wanted the heat to naturally go off now that's a function of the building's actual load the building's actual location and so what its actual energy use was so generally speaking there's more benefits to the natural light than than not so skylights especially are very you know, there's a there's there is a, a rate of return or a, or a point where it's not doesn't it's more cost effective to put in a roof than a, than a window. But the other aspect of it is just you know natural light is more healthy for people and stuff. For you sure, know, mood for and sure. stuff like that. So that's an architect question. I, don't know, yeah, so. <laughs> I was just curious, so that yeah. satisfies my curiosity. Yeah. Thank you. We talked about this a little bit before we started recording, which is you know how occupants building occupants or tenants Mm -hmm. sort of are impacting the way buildings are being designed or constructed um can you tell our listeners a little bit about what maybe some of those factors would be um you're starting you're starting to see tenants not just i mean there's twofold of it one is an owner who's building a new facility will say i'm going to own this building for a long time so i want everything that if i'm going to if my total cost of ownership is over 30 years i want everything that makes the most sense given that criteria you know things that last a long time that are very efficient so yes i'm going to pay more for it but i'm not going to have to replace it that's always been a trend what you're starting to see is our you know tenants rental tenants that only you know don't occupy the whole building saying that we want to rent this much space but we want it to be um, a lead certified silver building you know that's our requirements that gets thrown in the requirements just as much as you know, I need this many parking spaces or this much square foot. They want a building that's this certification. Or when it was built, used so much recycling material, that sort of thing. One person told me about how they, they demanded the building had to be from an existing building. It couldn't be a new construction. It had to be repurposed school or firehouse. So you do see that it is impacting designs up front. And the other side of it is, is, is what we call commissioning. People are demanding up front that the design be 40% better than energy code. Okay, and some other third party comes in and says, checks the math and says, yes, it will, you know, everything goes in. Then that person comes in later and says, yes, the right equipment was installed. And then they come in and they go, yes, and everything is functional. You know, that's that's actually quite a big business. And that's been going on for quite a while. But more so, uh, they did. A, there's more than a few studies out there where these buildings were built with complete efficiency intentions and operational. And they went back and found that buildings of the same load profiles and intentions and use and size had about the same energy demand. <laughs> so they were paying for all this extra stuff and they weren't really getting anything. So, And a lot of it came down to you can't 
just slap in an efficiency a high efficiency boiler and expect to use less. You have to operate it properly, keep it maintained. You know, so you see a lot of that. So more attention being paid to our industry, which is great from a supplier of equipment I love, you know. So I guess in that vein it is, you know, it's being demanded for, you know, definitely. So that's interesting. What about some other interesting projects that you've been exposed to recently that you're just whether it's things that are it's just some of the examples that you've given already have been like super interesting so curious if there's other standout projects for you yeah i'll have to speak generically because i don't know if i could say their names this particular is a medical device manufacturer there's about there's a, quite a few of them in the twin cities and they're doing a new testing facility and lab facilities and manufacturing facilities like that have very high energy intensities okay because they need to maintain very tight control of the spaces and they have to maintain you know operation throughout the year and so they're very cognizant of you know the equipment that goes in and that's just brand names but also styles but the project was going along pretty pretty far and when they were just about to start sort of construction and then a change came order came in saying we want to completely electrify this whole project so there was these large steam boilers that you know disappeared luckily we have a access to various manufacturers for electric boilers it was very eye-opening that this late in the process they would pay for the change and because you know the wires change and everything goes up and just so they can go electrify and so i ended up getting a call from the natural gas authority saying is this true because <laughs> they were because they were building their capacity out with with a certain amount of expectation that that there was going to be demand and then somebody called up and said ah oh, we don't need it anymore and that just never happens so it was very eye-opening to me that something i guess this elect- electrification you know stuff is real so can you touch on that a little bit for our listeners the difference if there is any between mm-hmm. decarbonization and electrification decarbonization generically just means trying to get away from fossil fuels and fossil fuel sources okay so fuel oil natural gas the easy solution is to say well i'm not going to use natural gas to heat heat or cool or heat we'll just say heat i'm going to use electricity and then theoretically i can buy that electricity from a clean source okay so decarbonization could also mean switching from a natural gas power plant and a coal plant and building a nuclear power plant or tapping you know adding a dam to the mississippi river or something like that so that you know it's decarbonization is very you know it's related to getting away from a fossil fuel electrification just means i'm going to use electricity wherever i can whether it's heat pump or, or electric resistance so that is interesting for to make such a large investment and change it so like you said this <laughs> electrification is real it's happening it is it is happening i mean the other aspect of it is now let's make the, the electrical grid can only handle so much more increase it can't handle you know huge you know half a quarter of the building switching over in the next 10 years we'll say which won't happen the electrical grid will collapse now we're going to say right now we're all driving electric cars so you know one of the other buzzwords you might have heard is smart grid and i've read papers on it and it just talks about oh we're going to be really smart about how we use electricity which we kind of always already are but what really what it meant is we're going to be able to take large users and for some people um you know say we're going to turn you off for a little while because we have to charge a bunch of cars or we need that electricity over here so i think there's some university uc berkeley maybe that is going complete electricity electrification now it's california so um a lot of California is banning natural gas pipes, banning natural gas hookups. So, but they're using they, they admit they have to do smart grid in that they have to um, change, they have to stop using power somewhere to, to use it somewhere else, just because of there's only so much available at a given moment in time. So, um, I think that's going to 
that's being done more in other parts of the world. The United States, we're a little more, I'll just put it something like, you know, a little more authoritating, a little more uh, rejection of authority. So, uh, whereas other parts of the world, they, they're perfectly fine with saying, okay, I guess I can't charge my car right now, you know. <laughs> so, that's not as, you know, people aren't as amenable here for that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I guess I wonder how everything's going to pan out. I mean, you're going to see a lot of new technologies for sure. And there's a lot of new technologies on that show because there's limitations to things like heat pumps. I did, a, I did a presentation on decarbonization, and I made sure I had the natural gas utility and the major electric utility for Minnesota in the room with me, and they gave me slides. I mean, like Excel's goal is to be 80% less carbon in 2030, 2035, something like that. So the, the question always comes is, you say electrification. It's like, well, yeah, but the, where did the electricity come from? If it came from a coal-fired plant, we're not helping the unit. We're not helping the world. But if it came from a solar farm, you know, then it's arguable. So. Right, and there are more coal power plants than solar farms at this point. Yes, the now you're getting into a regional thing. Minnesota, I think they're they're just about ready to decommission their last coal plant for Excel. Other there's other utilities. I've learned that there's not just one electric company in Minnesota, and Minnesota's not that big of a state. There's plenty of um, natural gas has taken over a lot. It's probably the predominant fuel in Minnesota for generation of electricity. But if you go south of us, Iowa, Iowa, I think is it's still a very high percentage of coal being used for their their plants you know these plants take a, you know a lot of time and a lot of money to, to redo and so you're not just going to change over it's not like i want to get better gas mileage so i'm going to sell my car and get a new one you know it, it doesn't happen that way it has to be over time excel has been on the forefront there interesting yeah i mean one of the unique things about minnesota is that the utilities are by law required to give out energy saving rebates as a percentage of their revenue, and I don't know what that number is. So they're mandated by law to pay somebody not to use their product is how we you know, joke around, but it's to promote energy efficiency, and there's various prescriptive, and we work a lot with utilities on that because it's a way to sell better equipment. Wow, that is interesting. Yeah. Anything you're particularly excited about at the show this year? It's going to sound really geeky, but I'm really interested in looking to see what new motors are out there. And this is a completely, you know, geek engineer, guilty thing to say. But there's something called the AC induction motor, which is the motor we use most of the time. But now we're starting to see all these um, efficiency level motors that are two or three levels above what we use here in the States. And it's coming to the Amer- coming to America. So we represent other manufacturers. And so it, I'm kind of excited to see who else is doing it. Oh, that's <laughs> why I asked the question. <laughs> you know, the difference between an AC induction motor and a a synchronous reluctance motor or a ferrite assist motor it's like because i mean our we sell pumps and we sell a lot of motors so you know that's an easy easy sell to say hey want to upgrade the motor so it's not quite in the u.s yet it is in the u.s it's coming around we we actually have been we've sold a few projects and the problem is that okay when i started in the industry we had standard efficiency and we had high efficiency and they had a number for high Standard went away, mid-90s, and then we had high, and then somebody came up with premium, and they came up with a number for premium. Well, now premium is sort of the base level, and there's these ultra-premium. Well, there you go beyond that, so it's it's super ultra-premium. So we're kind of running out of adjectives to describe, whereas in Europe they use IE. IE1 was standard, two, three, four. So where we can we can get not just super ultra-premium motors, <laughs> IE4, um, I guess... IE5 would be more good or super ultra premium motor would be IE5, but we can get IE5 motors here now and, you know, how that fits into our stuff. So that's my, you know, personal curiosity that I'm going to go out there and look at. So 
Great. Uh, anything else you want to mention either about the show, uh, Ashray, about what you're working on at MLK? Uh, well, as a membership promotion, I'll say, shamelessly say, if you're involved in the HVAC industry, Ashray is a great gateway to network, technical aspects. You know, the there's all sorts of benefits there. The the other thing that you, we're seeing a lot of people pay attention more to is Legionella, and Ashray has standards and, and you know for that. That's something that goes across a whole bunch of different industries and a whole bunch of different concerns. So, um, so yeah. And with uh, with our last adventure through you know diseases and COVID and things, you know, ultraviolet and filtration and ventilation is all real important. Um, learned a lot in the last few years, so about how to deal with those things um, as far as dealing with containment spread. Long story short, get a lot of air and it dilutes it. It's less of an issue. So meet outside. <laughs> if you're worried about meeting, if you're worried about something being sick, just meet outside. Very interesting. So. I talked earlier to your colleague Rob. Um, he was here with Eugene from McNevin, and we were talking about COVID a little bit and some of the impacts it has had on the industry, and then specifically on Mulcahy and McNevin. But the fact that one thing we didn't cover was just the airflow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're at an HVAC yep. show and we didn't really talk about the airflow and how that's changing or how that has changed considerably since the pandemic. Yeah, it, it's outside my expertise, so to speak, about air side things. I'm more of a, a water side guy, but I mean, we, we were around it. There's a larger impact, you know, or larger call for, you know, just greater quantities of fresh air and greater distribution. And what I mean by that is you can push air into a space, you know, like this open big space, and it doesn't necessarily get everywhere. So Asher did a really neat paper about how in Korea somebody somebody caused, the thought was that you you had to be next to somebody for many, many minutes in order to, to you know, can infect them, you know, if you were infected. But what they found is that if it, there was these dead zones where the air was really never circulated, so it just sat there. You can imagine, a, you, know, you know, it's just like an aroma. It doesn't, it, it, if there's nothing to disperse it, it sort of just sits there. Like if somebody smoked in that chair, 10 minutes later, you could go in there and say, Somebody was here smoking 10 minutes ago. So same thing with, with, with other things. So, you know, not just quantity of air, but really ensuring that you are distributing and mixing down. So the, the old phrase is the solution to pollution is dilution, you know, or you exhaust the bad stuff. You know, that's really what it comes down to. So reusing air has always been unhealthy. So ask my wife, whenever it's close to anywhere close and windy, the house gets opened up and it gets evacuated. Cool. Well, Dan, appreciate you being here. I have one more question for you. The big question, and that is, what is the most important thing you've learned in the water business so far? The most important thing I've learned in the water business is probably that you really need to, well, you always need to listen, but you have to look at the whole system. You have to look at start to finish. There are multiple steps to the system working, and if any one of those steps is not completed properly, the whole system doesn't work. And it could be something very simple. It could be something very difficult. But you have to understand a lot of manufacturers, Bell & Gossett has always been push, big about pushing us to understand the system. You know, not just this is a pump and this is how the pump works and this is it spins and it moves things and stuff like that. They spend just as much time talking about everything else in the system and getting us to understand that all of this sequence of events has to happen in order for it all to work. So just like your car, you know, if there's a... There's, all sorts of systems involved. If one of them's not work, there's just, there's one little gasket not there. The whole thing doesn't work. All you know is I've got a big paperweight. <laughs> 
that somebody paid for and it wasn't supposed to be a paperweight so <laughs> I guess that that's that's always been my if people come to me with a question I would go okay back up what's the application you know well it's a heating system it's a heating system in a what <laughs> you know so <laughs> I go all the way back you know, I don't go back to the alphabet but I go back to it's you like know. the five whys or yeah. if you keep asking why you'll eventually get to the real root of yeah. whatever the reason yeah. is so the, the worst questions I get are they come to me and go theoretically can you oh no I'm not answering that question the advice of history and I've learned too much <laughs> <laughs> give me the whole story or none of it yeah so. I'm asking for a friend but yeah, it, yes. yeah. well again Dan thank you so much for being here Thanks I hope you have me. a great rest of the show um, come join us again sometime will do will thank do. you thank you very much Many thanks to our Solving Water audience for tuning into this episode in our series of podcasts live from AHR 2023 in Atlanta. I'd also like to thank all the Bell & Gossett reps and Xylem experts who participated for making the time for me at the show. Links to more info for each show will be included in individual episode show notes. Tell me what you think of our Solving Water podcast by contacting me, Amanda Holloway, directly at amanda.holloway at xylem.com or find me on LinkedIn. Thank you.